The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. All right. I'm going to take you in a time machine back to the late 90s. Ooh. <laughs> Friends was on TV. Seinfeld. I was just finishing up high school. It's actually the early 2000s, but going to college. And there was this new thing everyone was talking about called yoga. Do you remember that? Do you remember when yoga was like a new thing? It's hard to remember now, but it wasn't that long ago. When I was a freshman in college, I was a little bit stressed out. A lot had changed for me in a short amount of time. I was living away from home, away from my parents for the first time ever. I had a roommate, and as an only child, that was a big switch for me. I was in college. I was an adult. (laughs) I thought I was an adult. And so in that first semester, I thought, you know what, let me get one of my uh, PE credits out of the way. I'm going to try this new thing called yoga. I'm going to take a yoga class. I hear it's supposed to be relaxing. (laughs) Yeah, So so much is funny about this story. So I signed up for that first ever yoga class. And I showed up on the first day of that first ever yoga class. And our yoga instructor, who was this older man, probably in his 60s, bald head, big flowy outfit on. It looked all very peaceful and relaxing. The first thing he told us to do, he said, bend over and touch your toes. And then he proceeded to do something like this. (laughs) Adorable, right? I'm not sure that's the same thing as bend over and touch your toes, but okay. So um, I was standing in this yoga class, and, you know, Reverend Ken, who's our lead minister here at Wellsprings, he talks a lot about how he's in recovery from a few things. He's in recovery from alcoholism, openly about that. He's in recovery from being a perfectionist. I'm going to admit today that I am a recovering overachiever. Anyone want to out themselves with me? Recovering overachievers in the room? Oh, yeah, yeah. And first semester at college, 18 years old, I was in the midst of my overachievement addiction, I believe me, at that time. When someone set a bar, my reflex, without even thinking, without any awareness, was not just to reach it, usually to jump over it, right? Immediately. So this yoga teacher told me, who'd never done yoga, didn't do sports in high school, wasn't athletic, to bend over and touch my toes. And I went like this. Ow! This hurts right now, what I'm doing. If you've done yoga, you know that I'm really not doing anything right. I am technically touching my toes, but my knees are bent a little bit. And my body is incredibly stiff right now. The backs of my legs are killing me. My shoulders are very tense. I'm not really breathing. (laughs) But am I touching my toes? Yes, I did it. The yoga instructor told me to stand up. (laughs) I felt like I had done something wrong in that yoga class. I confess I dropped it after another session. (laughs) We're going to come back to the yoga class later because something else did happen after that moment. But my overachievement mentality unfortunately, was pretty well supported by a lot of the things that were around me when I was a teenager. 
our culture in general is a pretty aspirational culture, right? Especially around this time of year, New Year's, New Year's resolutions, there's a lot of things thrown at us that we see on TV, in media, advertisements. Advertisements that say, here's a place that you could go, here's a place that you could get to, here's something you could become, and here's the way to do it, right? Everyone is always willing to sell you something that will help you reach that aspiration. This force is actually so powerful that I would argue that our American economy in large part runs on this fact that at some level we don't like who and where we are. Think about the Internet. One of the biggest social and informational revolutions of our time, something that also you know, wasn't that big a deal in the 90s, at least the early 90s. The Internet runs on advertising money. When you go to a website, when you go to use Facebook, when you go to use social media, how do those websites make their money? Ads, right? They make their money on the premise that there's something you're dissatisfied with about your life. That energy powers the Internet, all right? It's a pretty big force in our society. Our economy increasingly runs on our dissatisfaction with the present. Maybe, you know, it could be a lot of things, right? There's the classic things we think about. We don't like how we look. We don't like our weight. Maybe we don't like being single. I get a lot of those ads. I know every dating service there is out there, trust me. (laughs) Maybe we don't like the way our body is changing as we age. Maybe we don't like the way that someone we love is changing as they age. Maybe we don't like our job or the amount of money we make. Maybe we don't like the way our house looks or the way it runs on the inside. Or maybe we just kind of feel blah. Maybe most days, some days, we just have this feeling, this little dislike that pops up if we aren't distracted by anything else. This little bit of dissatisfaction that comes into our awareness if we sit quietly for too long. This is not a unique problem to our society. The Buddha, you may have heard of him, he had a name for this problem. He called it dukkha, which is a Pali and a Sanskrit word that means suffering. The Buddha believed that this was such an important part of our human nature that he actually made it the core of the spiritual tradition that bears his name. The first noble truth of Buddhism is that life contains suffering. Life contains suffering. So pessimistic Buddhism, right? So un-American, right? We should be able to achieve our dreams. We should be able to reach our goals and change those feelings that we have. But no, Buddha wasn't having it. We push ourselves sometimes. We push ourselves to that hoped-for goal, even though we know that we probably will never feel sadness, we'll never not feel sadness again or not feel dissatisfaction again. We get hooked by this idea that we can escape suffering. 
even though our nature is to be dissatisfied with what is. On some level, our nature is that we will crave something different than what's in front of us. We crave change. We have this fascinating relationship with how our lives could be different. And we get so fixated on one idea, right? Sometimes we resist change. We want things to stay exactly the same. And then the next moment, oh, we wish that the sun was out, right? I wish that the sun was out this morning. I was happy when we saw it a couple minutes ago. There's always some little thing that we wish were different. That fact is not good or bad. It's not a flaw that we want things to be different than they are. It just is. It's part of our reality. But if we're not aware and awake to it, it's a part of our reality that's very, very easily exploited by the people who want our money, or by the people who want us to lose hope so that we'll follow them, or by the people who don't care if we hurt ourselves in the process. We have this idea of what success and successful change, getting to that goal we have in our minds, will look like. We have an idea in our minds that looks like this graph on the left, Right? This right here, on the left, that's what people sell to us. You have a problem, I have a solution. You need something, I have a product. It's quick. Now I have good news and bad news. Spoiler alert, it's that other graph, right? That's right next to me. The bad news is that change and our process of getting where we want to be is much more unpredictable and complex and dynamic than a straight line. But the good news is that change, the process of our lives, is much more unpredictable and complex and dynamic than a straight line. This is what it means to be alive, not to be a machine, not to be something that is bought or sold. The real process of getting there is kinder. It takes us where we are. It's more loving and it's also more interesting than the simplistic idea that gets sold to us, that there's one right way or there's one right path to get to where we want. Now, this is a lovely little image that gets circulated around the Internet a lot. But I think, actually, it, you know, it can be a little frustrating, too, because change isn't always complete chaos, right? We do have some power in our lives. We do have some ability to direct where we go. I think that the real process of change looks a lot more like this circle. When we want things to be different than they are, we can set an intention. We can say, this is okay, that I want something to grow, or to renew, or to be not the way it is right now. I can set an intention to do what I can do to get there. The next step is to take inventory of where we are. From that place, we can act, and then we can reflect on where we are again. Now, inventory, that's a place 
that we often don't want to go. (laughs) The jump from intention to action, that's a very well-worn path. You might notice it looks like a straight line. It looks a lot like that straight line that we get sold all the time. Reverend Ken, our lead minister, told us a story last week to open this message series about a community in Haiti. Yesterday, Reverend Ken, Kevin Donahue, Kevin's son Kelly, Monica Perme, and her son Jack all landed in Haiti. They're there along with some members of other local congregations on a service trip for this next week. And as they were researching and preparing for this trip, they learned about a lot of other efforts that had gone on to support people in Haiti who were displaced from their homes after the earthquake there. One of the stories that Reverend Ken told last week was of a village that was built, houses, great, good, stable housing available to people who'd been displaced by the earthquake that no one was living in. And no one was living there because no one had bothered to ask the people those houses were for, what they needed and wanted out of their housing. And so they built all of these houses in a community on the outskirts of Port-au-Prince where there was no infrastructure, there was no public transportation, there were no jobs available for these people. No one had taken inventory after they set their good and beautiful intentions to help. They jumped directly from intention to action. They felt some dissatisfied feelings. And action is really good at getting rid of those dissatisfied feelings, right? Action is really good at distracting us from taking an honest look around at where we are. When we jump from intention to action, we skip a step and we can waste a lot of energy and effort. And yet all of those New Year's resolution products, diet plans, they're all encouraging us to do that, right? They're all encouraging us to say, our good intentions, you're ready, you've got that good intention, you can do something right now. You can do something right now to fix it and make all of those dissatisfied feelings go away. You can just roll up your sleeves, you can build that village somewhere in Haiti, and you can brush off all of the sadness and the guilt, and the confusion, and the anger around global poverty and imperialism and exploitation. Just brush it off with the sawdust when you're done. Except those feelings come back. Because that's the kind of change that's not sustainable, or loving, or kind. There's a blogger named Mark Manson, I don't know if any of you have read his blog. Um, It gets shared a lot on social media. How do I say this nicely? It's kind of a dude bro blog. (laughs) Mark Manson made a name for himself writing articles about how to pick up women, right? So this isn't exactly where I typically go for my first line of life advice. Um, And yet... He gets a lot of shares on social media, and actually a a fellow clergy member of mine, not Reverend Ken, but someone else, shared one of his articles this week, which made me take notice. And so I said, okay, let me read this thing and see what's in it. The title of the article was, The Most Important Question of Your Life. He's good at clickbait, Mark Manson, right? (laughs) 
So the most important question of your life, it's an article about finding out what you really want. Asking ourselves, what is it that we want out of this life? And I will give it to him. He nailed this issue of the quick fix in this article. He nailed this thing about how when we think about what we want in our lives, we jump right from intention to action. And we skip that middle step. Which is why we are so consistently frustrated with not getting what we want, with feeling like we're not getting what we want. He told a story personally for himself about his dream all through his life of becoming a rock star. All right, confession time. Don't worry, I'm going to raise my hand. How many of us have ever dreamed of becoming a rock star? Yeah, see, we're not nearly as embarrassingly unique as we think we are, you guys. I don't know if you can relate to the story. I can. He said, any badass guitar song that I ever heard, I would close my eyes in the car, in the shower, by myself, and I'd air guitar, and I'd envision myself up on that stage playing it to the adoring screams of the crowd. He went to music school, but he dropped out. Eventually, he stopped playing regularly. And he said, you know, for years, I beat myself up over not reaching this fantasy. Like, I hadn't worked hard enough, or I hadn't had the discipline to do it. And he said, you know what? One day, I let myself off the hook because I realized the reason that this dream never came true was that I didn't really want it. I wanted the result. I was in love with the result, he said. I could fantasize about the result for hours on end. But I had never loved the process. He said, I conveniently ignored all of the data that was pouring in, all of that inventory information that came to him from the actual reality of his life, which told him, hey, Mark, you hate practicing. You hate it with a passion. It's drudgery. It's tedious. It's not what you love to do. The reality that said, hey, Mark, you hate logistics and cold calling people. You hate putting yourself out there trying to find bandmates. You hate marketing and promoting yourself. So he decided that maybe where he was was okay. Now, my confession is not quite complete. Uh, those of you who had the rock star fantasy, raise your hands again. So maybe you'll hear yourself in this story, too. I confess that I, too, have spent my whole life strategizing, how can I become a rock star while expending a minuscule amount of effort to get there? And I, too, have been frustrated by the lack of results that I've seen. So someone sold me something recently, and I'm actually not mad that they sold it to me. There's a nonprofit organization in Philadelphia that is a great nonprofit called Girls Rock Philly. They run rock band camps and after-school programs for uh, young girls and teenage girls in the city, where they teach them to play instruments and write songs and form bands. And someone very smart on their advisory board said, you know what, I bet we could make a lot of money and get a lot of donors if we asked adult women to sign up for a weekend rock band camp, and they'll pay tuition to the organization, and they will get to live out their rock star fantasies. They were correct. <laughs> so I signed up for the ladies' 
rock band camp about two months ago over a long weekend, and I thought, yes, one weekend of invested time. This is my chance. (laughs) I signed up to play the bass guitar because it was cool and I thought it would be easy. (laughs) Rodney is laughing at me already. And also because I'd recently actually seen and totally fallen in love with a video that I saw online. Um, there's a visualization video of the bass line. It shows you the complexity, the incredible in- intricacy of James Jamerson's bass line. James Jamerson is one of the most famous Motown bass players uh, in the world. And this was his bass line for Stevie Wonder's song, I Was Made to Love Her. Anybody know that song? I'm going to play it a little bit, just the the first verse and chorus for you so that you can hear it. I'm going to have Carl do that, and I'm going to invite Rodney to come up while he's doing it. wanted to dance just then. I could see it. (laughs) Carl was dancing in the back. So I saw this video and I was like, this is so cool. This is such a great bass line. I already love Stevie Wonder. I already love this song. I'm going to learn to play this. (laughs) So Rodney, (laughs) will you please play the isolated bass line for I Was Made to Love Her? And he's 52. Thank you, Rodney. (laughs) So uh, Rodney's been playing bass for a couple of decades. I went to that weekend rock camp. So how long had I been playing bass? Three days. I cannot play that. At all. I don't know if I'll ever be able to play that. Also, I got a new bass for Christmas. Take a guess. How many times do you think it's been out of the box? <laughs> Hold up a finger. Uh-huh. Yep, yep. Majority is correct. One. <laughs> right after I got it for about a half hour. It's really pretty, though. Got a lot of Instagram likes. 
You see, it's true. Looks great in my apartment. The, the inventory data about this dream of mine has been pouring in my entire life. I took piano lessons once when I was a kid. For about eight years, I took piano lessons. Did I like practicing piano? No. It's drudgery. I agree, Mark Manson. It's drudgery. I'm uh, not good at things that require dexterity and fine motor skills. <laughs> Why did I think that this would work? <laughs> but you know what did happen during that weekend? A couple things. I actually came up with the bass line for the song that we played at our showcase at the end. Now, it was a four-note bass line, trust me, okay? It was very simple. But I didn't realize that writing music actually would come easily to me. It was very simple, but it ended up being the ground on which our band built the rest of their song. And another thing happened. I remembered that my favorite thing in the world, the thing that I do in the car on the way here and in the car on the way home and when I'm by myself cooking, is singing. I sat around with the two other singers in the band and we came up with harmonies to go with the lead singer's line. And as we were practicing, I realized this is the best I felt all day. This comes as easily and naturally to me as breathing. And I could do it forever. These are the clues as to who I am. These are the clues as to who I was meant to be, the gifts that I was born with, the limitations that I was born with. What emerges from an honest inventory are the things that we love, the things that will sustain us through the inevitable dissatisfaction that we will experience in our lives. In every moment of being exactly where we are, we are not stuck in the same place. Every moment, if we're willing to look clearly and lovingly around us, is pregnant with the next possibility. It may not look the way we expect it. But if we're willing to be where we are, if we're willing to take that honest inventory, then we can be ready to act. And to act without pushing, without hurting ourselves or anyone else in the process. So I promise that we come back to that yoga story as we close and get ready for our last song. I want to invite anybody who wants to do a little simple, very simple yoga with me to stand up and maybe find a space in the aisle you're going to need a little bit of space in front of you. So I told you about how the first thing that that yoga instructor told me to do was to bend over forward and touch my toes. And he told me to get up, right, because I was hurting myself. So I'll tell you what he told me to do next. He said, you're going to do the same thing, except don't do it yet. This time, when you bend forward to touch your toes, I want you to stop when you get as far as you can go. I want you to reach as far as you can without pain. You may not get to your toes. That's okay. So why doesn't everybody do that with me now? Just fall forward. And when you reach your limit, just stay there. 
you'll know. Now take a breath. Just breathe in this place right at the edge of what you can do. And feel the muscles in your back relaxing and opening up as you breathe in and out. Feel the pleasant opening of the muscles on the backs of your legs. Just stay where you can. Just be here letting gravity hold you. And keep breathing. And after I'd done that for a little while, my yoga teacher told me, now, if you can, see if you can reach any farther. And I could. Probably about a quarter inch. (laughs) But I could. You can rise up slowly now. And go back to your seats. See free yoga at Wellsprings every Sunday. (laughs) Not really. Not every Sunday. He taught me something that I've carried with me into every other area of my life since then. He said, you stay to move. We stay to move. We stay right here where we are, with ourselves, compassionate with ourselves, wherever it is that we can be. And then, when we do that, we can move. When we stay with ourselves, we actually realize the incredible, creative, exciting paradox of life. When we stay with ourselves, Nothing stays the same. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Holy Presence, God of each of our understanding, power of love, that knows our deepest secrets, that knows our fears, that knows our dreams. May we allow that limitless love that you offer to us with no expectation. May we allow ourselves to feel and receive it. May we know that in every moment it is here waiting, ready for us to return. For these prayers that are spoken aloud and for the prayers that each one of these people carries silently on their hearts today, we say amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's Wellsprings, the letters UU dot o-r-g